I'm going to continue this morning uh, in the book of Ephesians. We've made it all the way to chapter 5. And, uh, and we're just going to look at the first two verses in chapter 5 today. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn there, that's fine. I'm going to be reading it out loud, so you don't have to do that. Uh, if you don't want to flip around there. But um, just to remind you, we're in the middle of a section right now that uh, that is Paul dealing with uh, certain questions and situations and, and, and I think various forms of blindness uh, and immaturity and he's, he's, uh, he's reminding his readers in this section that we, we've called uh, well we, we, when we looked at it a few weeks back we called it the, 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 the part of the New Testament that a lot of people consider do's and don'ts. And we looked at why why these so-called do's and don'ts are in there and why they're not and how we can quickly turn those into things that they were never intended to be and miss the foundational reality of the gospel. And hopefully you remember those those messages. But he's still in the midst of, of a section kind of like that and he's talking about these Adamic uh, the fruits of the Adamic tree that he expects to be passing away from them because they have already been put away from God's sight. And he's telling them that they should be putting on the new man by the renewing of the spirit of the, of the mind. And that, that, that would bring about the experience of the fruits of that new man, the, the fruits of, of Christ himself, the fruits of the spirit, not the fruits of, you know, again, he's not telling them to act like something. Uh, he's... He's, uh, he's talking about the fruits of, of the Spirit of God working in them, and he's telling them also in some of these verses how to be wise stewards of their earthen vessel during their stay on earth. Um, and so Paul continues in that same theme here in chapter 5. And I'm just going to read the next two verses to you and then make some comments about, uh, about those verses. Uh, okay, Ephesians 5.1. Therefore... Be imitators, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Now let's start with verse 1. Uh, it says here, and then I'm reading from the New King James, it says to be imitators of God as beloved children. Um, if you read from the King James or from Young's literal translation, or there's a, there's a couple others, it says it doesn't say it uses the word imitators. It uses the word followers, followers of God. Um, I don't know really which one of those. They both could be misunderstood. I think maybe the word followers is, is a more helpful translation because of what we do with the word imitators. But I'm actually not opposed to the word imitator uh, here, if we understand the way that it's being used. Uh, on the other hand, if we don't understand the way that it's being used, how Paul intends to use this word, uh, then there's a whole lot of room for us to misunderstand what's being said. You, you've all heard me say many times that, that the gospel is not about an imitation of Jesus. It's not about an imitation of God in the, in the flesh. And, and on a few occasions, um, one in particular comes to mind right now, but somebody said, well, what about Ephesians 5.1? You know, where it says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Or what about, there's another place in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, where Paul says, uh, 
uh, be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. And it's the same, it's the same Greek word there. You could say followers or imitators. Um, and, and, you know, so the, so the question is then posed uh, to me, what do you do with these verses? And, and I, I, I would guess that uh, for us um, now, the, question, that the answer to that question um, should be pretty apparent. Um, it, it, all, it all depends what it means to imitate or follow the Lord. It all, you know, your understanding of that verse hinges on how you understand the word imitate. Uh, my objection to the word imitate is not that it's a horrible word. My objection is that when most people use it, they seem to have in mind some kind of an outward uh, mimicking of behavior. And the idea is generally that we're, we're to copy what Jesus did or we're to replicate what Jesus said, or we're to do our best to reproduce what he felt in certain situations. And if that's how we're understanding the word imitate, then it's a very, very inadequate word for describing anything related to Christian growth or transformation. If that's, how, if that's what we see, when we, if we see outward mimicking in the flesh when we read the word imitate, uh, and I think many people do, uh, then, then, then you should put the word follower in there if it's not written in there or, or you know, whatever. And, and the reason is because Christianity has nothing to do with men and women trying to act like Jesus. And that's... I know that that's, that's still uh, maybe sounds strange to our ears uh, because of what we maybe heard for years, but but trying to act like Jesus isn't even uh, it's not even distantly related to the gospel. The gospel is the answer to the problem that nobody could act like Jesus. You understand? It's absolutely impossible to act like Jesus. And also, you and I can't even know Jesus uh, through what we observe about him with natural faculties. And so we certainly couldn't replicate him in any, any way. And so despite its popularity, I hope that those of you who've been here for some time uh, can see the absurdity of that idea. It amounts to nothing more than a bunch of human beings trying to live according to whatever capricious and shallow perspective of Christ that they currently want to believe. <clears throat> you know, first with our natural minds, we define what we think Jesus is like. And then with our flesh, we try to live according to that imaginary standard. And brothers and sisters, that is called religion. That's called religion. Religion is where man defines God according to whatever desirable traits we believe we would like to emulate, we would like to try to represent. And by doing that, mankind actually gets to worship his own ideas. And I want you to see that that's 
That's what we do all the time in the church too. That's why there are 40,000 or whatever different denominations in, in the world. Why are there so many different ideas about the one Jesus of the Bible? Because man is amazingly adept at defining our concept of a higher power according to the things that we want to worship. We create our version of Jesus and then we bow down to it. I remember a long time ago, uh, maybe, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago, <clears throat> someone put into my hand a book written by this, um, this atheist philosopher. I may have mentioned this before. I opened it up and on the first page it, it, it read, uh, it, it, was a, it was an obvious uh, attempt to kind of mock the Bible because on the first page of the first chapter it said, in the beginning man created God in his own image. And I remember being offended uh, by the book and I didn't read it. Because at the time it kind of offended my religiosity, I guess. But, uh, but now I realize that despite whatever ridiculous ideas were probably espoused in that book, the opening sentence actually had some truth to it. Way back at the beginning, not God's beginning, but, but very close to man's beginning, man did begin to create God in accordance with his own image and his own likeness. In his imagination, but he still served it and worshipped it. Man did that after he ate the lie and began to view all things, even his concept of God, as a means to his own end. That's what the lie did. And that's why the idols... Uh, the idols are so frowned upon in the Old Testament. That's how, why God has so many strong words to say about the idols. <clears throat> it's not just because they're made of wood or stone or metal. It's not just because they're, they're false gods. Obviously, all of that is true, but idols are forget, forbidden by God, I believe, primarily because they are man's ideas about God. That's what an idol is. They're man's ideas about heaven. They're man's ideas about worship or man's ideas about divinity or... They're what man creates in the darkness of his own thought. They don't just represent demons. They represent where man has refused the truth. As it says in Romans chapter 1, that man exchanged the truth of God for a lie and made these images in the form of beasts and birds and whatever. But they're just... Another instance of man preferring his own darkened ideas. And therefore, you know, you see what's the first commandment of the Ten Commandments, the very first commandment. The very first thing God addresses with Israel by his law, man shall have no other gods. Man is not allowed to make up his idea of God. Man is not allowed to carve his own imagination or, or to carve his own impression of God into wood or stone the likeness of any part of creation. You can't do that. That's, that's rule number one with God. Why? Well, because just like the Egyptians with the, um, I mean, the, the, the Israelites with the golden, golden calf. Remember that incident? Man is always going to create a version of God that suits his own interests and his own appetites. And on top of that, we usually deify our own our own ideas and worship them and we believe them to be completely supernatural. I was, I was thinking about how um, 
No, no one says it's their own idea. Everyone says it came from God. It's some kind of supernatural uh, uh, being or idea that was revealed. Or you know, you think about the uh, the story where Aaron t gathers up all of the um, um, <clears throat> the, the gold from their earrings and all of that, and, and he puts it in the in the fire. And what does he tell Moses? He said, "I just put the gold in there, and it came out a calf." You know, I don't. Know, I mean, I don't know if. I don't know what that was. If he actually believed that, I'm sure that was probably the rumor going around. You know, I mean, this thing came right from God. It just it happened on its own, and 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 so we, you know, it's our ideas, it's our image, it's our it's our God that we want to worship in our way, and we just give it supernatural qualities in our own head and and worship it. You know, we always say, "It wasn't me; it was God." I'm just being obedient. I'm just following my creator or whatever. I've read that uh, Hindu, the religion of Hindu has over uh, 300 million gods. And that doesn't surprise me. That doesn't surprise me because the religion of Christianity has over 300 million versions of Jesus. And most of them are idols. All of them that stand contrary to God's view of His Son, revealed by the Spirit of God, are idols of man's imagination. I know those are hard words, but they're true. Idols exist as much in today's society or more than ever. Christians don't carve their imaginations in stone, but... We write them in books. We're just as quick to stamp our own image onto the ways of God and the words of Jesus and all of that. And all of that was just kind of a rabbit trail. I was trying to say that uh, a mere outward imitation or mimicking of what we perceive to be God's behavior or God's way is worthless. Our ideas about Jesus are idols. You see, our ideas about Jesus are idols. Which ones? All of them. And to imitate those ideas is to serve that idol. And that's true because God defines truth by revealing His Son. God brings understanding of who He is by showing you His eternal Word. God reveals the truth as it is in Christ. And in the absence of the light of that revealing is the darkness of man's concepts. And one of the things you have to come to face when you see, when you begin to see that Word that defines all things, when you begin to see in that light, one of the things you have to realize right away is that you you cannot decide what is real. And you cannot, you cannot ever imitate what God is showing you. You can be conformed to Him. You can be made like Him through the power of the cross, but you, as a man or a woman, can never use what you have to copy what He is. And so that is certainly not what Paul is talking about when he says what he says in Ephesians 
<clears throat> so what is he talking about? Well, I think it's uh, I think it's important where he says, "Be imitators of God as beloved children." <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, the, the the New King James says, "Dear children." A better translation is "beloved," beloved children. Uh, which is the literal translation. And the reason it makes a difference to me is that the nature of God's love is to give His Spirit without limit. To give Himself through the cross to those who um, who have been given, as John says, the right to be called sons of God. So what I see here, what I'm seeing in that sentence there is an encouragement that those who are sons must grow up to be like their father. Those who have been given his very life must have that life formed in them to the end that they come to look like him. Those who have Christ as their life must be conformed to Christ with the result that they resemble him in all things. I think that's what Paul's getting at here. I think that's what Paul means by imitators. It's not a wrong goal for us to want to resemble Christ if we understand that goal rightly. The issue at stake here is how or in what way is that accomplished. That's the issue. How is it that you and I can come to resemble Christ in any way? As we have said, it's not, it's not you trying to copy the things that you've learned about him. That's just not it. It is through the very life of Christ himself, given to you by his Father, coming to work in you and be formed in you by the revealing of his Spirit. So Paul says in Philippians 2, you all know the verse, For it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Uh, Paul says, I am in labor, my children, until Christ is formed in you. Or all the scriptures, yet not I, but the one who mightily works within you. Or he is able to do exceedingly more than you ask or think through the power of him that works mightily in you. And this is Christ himself bringing, you, bringing your soul into conformity to his indwelling life. So it's not an outward duplication. It is an inward transformation through putting off one man... And then by the renewing of the spirit of the mind, putting on another. It's not disciplined behavior or, or uh, religious devotion to, to some standard, some value. This, uh, this imitation that Paul speaks of here has to do with your soul actually being made conformable to his death and attaining to his resurrection. You see? I think you probably get the point. Let me just summarize. Um, Paul is talking about the Lord's body coming to resemble the Lord himself. The Lord's body coming to look like the Lord himself. And, and, and in that way, we can, said, we can be said to be imitators of the one who has given us his life. In that, in that context, that word for me is fine. In fact, that's, that's really what the next verse goes on to talk about. The word, uh, the word imitators may not be the best, the best word choice or the best English word to represent that Greek word, but for me it's an okay word as long as we keep in mind how anything in us comes to, to resemble anything in him. Only when Christ, our life, is revealed and 
formed in us? Do we put off one man, have one nature cut away by the sword of his word? And does there remain anything of him in us? So we can, quote, imitate God only by bearing in ourselves the increase of his son. Okay, verse, verse 2, Paul says, And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Um, this, is, this is similar, to me, this is similar to what Paul says in the end of chapter 4. Remember where he says, Forgiving one another as God and Christ has forgiven us. Uh, now Paul's kind of saying the same thing about loving one another as Christ loved us. And if you remember, in the case of forgiveness, um, Paul didn't leave the definition of forgiveness up to us. He said, forgive even as God in Christ has forgiven you. And, and we talked about how that forgiveness, that reality of forgiveness that we receive from God has to do with the fact that we have been crucified, that forgiveness is through death and reckoning the Adamic man dead and relating to one another, God relating to us and us relating to one another in Christ, in the Spirit. Well, Paul's kind of doing the same thing here with love. He's not allowing you and I to define what love means, in the body of Christ at least. He's once again giving the nature of Christ's love as the example of, how, how, of what should be operating in, in the Lord's body. So I want to look at the, I want to look at the nature of Christ's love as our example of what love is. And then I want to look just briefly at the end here. I'll, I'll look at specifically why, why Paul brings in these old covenant, uh, offerings and sacrifices, uh, th these types and shadows, why he brings them in. God, he says, Christ gave himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice for God as a sweet smelling aroma. And you should obviously be, be understanding that he's going back to the types and shadows and bringing them up and showing, showing this to be the fulfillment here. Um, it's amazing to me, as hard as it may, as hard as it may be for us to, to comprehend, the great love of God for Paul was actually the fulfillment of what he read in Exodus and Leviticus with these offerings and these sacrifices. But, but first of all, speaking very generally, I want to say some things about uh, the love of Christ. We've, we've talked about love a few times recently, um, and I, so I won't, I won't spend a whole lot of time on, on that, although, although I found it to be that understanding the love of God is something that kind of has to chip away at our hearts. There's so much wrong understanding and wrong thinking. It takes time, so I'm not... I have no problem with, with repeating some things. Um, the Spirit of God needs time to work on us. Uh, or, or we need time to allow the Spirit of God to work on us is probably the better, better way to say that. Generally speaking, the nature of Christ's love for us has to do with giving himself. Giving himself. The nature of Christ's love is not known or defined by what he felt... It is known and defined by what he did. Christ's love for you and I is not... Try to, wait, wait till I get done before, before you uh, misunderstand me here. Christ's love for you is not 
an emotion. It's not defined as an emotion. Christ's love for you and I is the reality and experience of the life that he has given us through the cross. And I know that I'm misunderstood on this point quite frequently, so I want to try to clarify here. In saying that Christ's love for us is not defined as an emotion, I am not saying that emotions are bad things. I'm not saying anything like that. Nor am I saying that it is not entirely appropriate for you and I to have all sorts of emotions in response to God's love. I can tell you personally, uh, right now when I see something of the reality of God's love, I am often overwhelmed with emotion. Um, the reality of God's love when it comes into view in the light of, of Christ's appearing fills fills me with emotions. It can flood my heart with joy and peace and, and thanksgiving and make me cry. I uh, get all teary and sappy and, and all of that's entirely appropriate. There certainly is a very real emotional element that happens in my heart in, in my relationship with the Lord and whatever and, and, and in the Lord's relationship with me. However, that works in the divine Godhead. And I am not in any way against emotion, but I, I realize something. Emotion doesn't define this relationship. On the contrary, this relationship must define emotion. And I know that can be hard to see for a while. It starts to grow on you, though. I, I mean, your view of Christ continues to grow. You know, you're seeing the Lord, and it just gets bigger, and it gets bigger. If you, if you keep looking, it gets bigger. And, and, and eventually, what you find happens is that eventually love becomes... Your view of love becomes much bigger than an emotion. Sooner or later, our view of Christ gets big enough to burst out of our natural comprehension of love. That's what I'm saying. Sooner or later, Christ begins to define love rather than our view of love defining Christ. Let me try to give you an analogy from marriage. Let's say you were teaching a, a seminar, a marriage seminar, and, uh, and the seven-year-old kid walks in to, to, in the middle of your se seminar and interrupts and says, okay, <clears throat> I already know what marriage is. I've, I've seen it in the movies. Marriage is a strong emotion between a man and a woman. Marriage is another word for passion. I would hope that you, if you were the one giving the, uh, the seminar on marriage, would, would, uh, would say, no, actually, Marriage is a bit bigger than just an emotion. Emotions certainly exist within marriage, um, but, but emotion is not marriage. And the kid would then say, well, I don't know what else it could be. I mean, I, I, all I could see in the movies was how much they felt for each other. That, you know, that, that, and that makes sense to me. I have, this, I have a crush on this second grader, and, 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 uh, and I told her that in my mind, we're as good as married. And the child is obviously confused, and so you sit down with them and you <clears throat> you begin to explain 
you explain some things to them, you say, listen, marriage is actually a relationship. It's a covenant where two enter into a permanent, permanent relationship, and that relationship will involve many emotions. Some of them are wonderful, some of them are not so fun, but the emotions don't define the relationship. The relationship stands independent of the emotion. In fact, little boy, part of the problem in our society is people like you growing up and learning to define reality based on your experience of emotion. And if covenant is based on an emotion, the obvious thing to do is to break the covenant whenever the emotion changes. And then you go on and on describing to the seven-year-old the fact that nice emotions are a great benefit of marriage, but marriage is not defined by emotion. Well, it may be a, a leap, but, but for, for our mind to jump from that obvious analogy to understanding the love of God, but it's very much the same way with God's love. God's love is a relationship that he has with you in Christ. It's the covenant in which he gives himself to you. That's the love of God. It's the covenant. It's, this, it's what God is and what God has done. God has loved you by giving you himself in covenant. Love is when God gives himself to you in the person of Christ through the cross. Love is the giving of the person in whom all that God has becomes yours. It's a, re it's a relationship. Love is a relationship where God has lavished himself upon you by giving you life and righteousness and redemption and truth and adoption and inheritance all in and all as Christ himself. And certainly and without question emotions will be drastically affected by that relationship by that reality. But emotion on neither side is the definition of that, of that reality, of that love. You receive God's love when you receive the Son in whom you are loved. You receive God's love when you accept the cross by faith and enter into the relationship of love. You know God's love when you begin to know the Son that He has given you. You abide in God's love when you abide in that life by faith. You are rooted and grounded in God's love when, you, when the gift of His Son becomes the place and the person and the reality where your soul dwells. And, and as I said earlier, Sooner or later, the gift of love that God has given you in Christ will burst the seams of our natural definitions. And that's a very good thing. And we will understand that the shadow cannot contain the substance. The old wineskin cannot contain the new wine. In other words, our natural, shadowy view of love based on natural things will never be an adequate container to carry the reality of God's love in Christ. How did Christ love you? Christ loved you by 
Christ loved you by bearing the cross for the joy set before him. What do I mean? I mean Christ loved you by being obedient to death that he might share resurrected life with you. Christ loved you by bearing the end of the first man so that he could become in you the second man, the life-giving spirit. Christ loved you by bearing in himself the death of one man so that he could share with you the life of another. Can you hear that? And that is precisely how we are to love one another. Loving our brethren before anything else means that we lay down our lives so that we can share Christ's life with and minister Christ's life to the body. Loving our brethren as Christ loved us at its foundational place is where we bear in ourselves the death of one man so that we can share the life of another. You see? Now I realize, I realize that this reality of love bearing the end of one man and, and so that we can share the life of another. I realize that ha that has many outward, manifestation, outward manifestations and all sorts of actions or kind actions or, or things that would seem selfless, uh, selfless sacrifices. I, I understand that. But you can't define love by the effect. You have to define it by the substance. There are many effects. Many kind things or... Selfless, selfless sacrifices that may come out from love, but kind action, actions and sacrifices do not constitute love. In fact, Paul tells us a mind blower in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 when he says it's possible for you to sell all your possessions to feed the poor and give your body to be burned and still have not love. See, in our natural minds, we define love by the effect. Paul says, no, those effects aren't the sure sign of anything. There's lots of selfish reasons that motivate mankind to, to, to sacrifice and to serve. All over the world, going on right now. Love is bigger than the actions that are sometimes motivated by love. Can you hear that? See, death... Death worked in Paul. Remember that scripture? He says, death works in me so that life can work in you. Behind everything he did, this is how he was loving them. See, behind, he did a lot of things for them. I mean, in the natural, he did a lot of things for them, and some of those things hurt. But behind all of that was his motivating reality. Death works in me so that life can work in you. And certainly, again, certainly that reality landed Paul. The outworking of that reality in the natural realm landed Paul in prison. And it, and, and it brought about many hardships and sufferings in the natural realm. There's no doubt about that. He talks about that. Without question, Paul suffered in his body for the good of the church. But still never did Paul define love by what he suffered. For him, the nature of love went deeper than enduring prison and pain. For Paul, the nature of love was not defined by anything in that realm. The nature of love was the gift of Christ given to the soul of the redeemed. And for Paul, to truly love the Lord's body, 
you realize that he had to bear in himself the death of one man so that he could bear in himself the person who is the gospel so that he could bear in himself the life of the gospel to these people so that he could minister that that life the love of god to them in paul's own words Paul was, he says, I am daily bearing about the dying of the Lord Jesus so that the life of Jesus might be manifest in this mortal flesh. And so I say all that because Paul is telling us to walk in love even as Christ loves us. See? To walk in love in the same way, to walk in this reality, this relationship, this covenant, this gift, walk in the truth, walk in the light, Walk as one rooted and grounded in all that God has given in Christ and learn by the Spirit to love one another even as Christ loved you. Once again, uh, Christ defines love and our understanding of love cannot define Christ. And to make that even more apparent, to make that even more solid in their understanding, he brings it back to the testimony. He brings it back to the old covenant. And he, and he says, here's, here's how he gave, here's how he showed love, here's how he did it. He says he gave us himself as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. And, and, and I wish we could, we could spend a whole lot of time looking at some of the specifics uh, of that. But I want, rather than getting into the specifics, I'd like you just to see how Paul tries to show us the substance by pointing back to the shadow. He tries to put a window up in front of you, a window of, of words, letters, shadows, and ordinances, so that we can look through that window and see something see something of Christ. He tries to make us understand the new covenant by having us look at the old covenant. And in this particular case, he's talking about offerings and sacrifices. You know, we're making our way through uh, uh, an overview of Old Testament typology in our nine o'clock uh, class. And we're getting close to covering some of these uh, offerings and sacrifices. And that's probably where we'll... Uh, where we'll get into more of the details here, but I'd like to just kind of advertise the Old Covenant here for a minute, if I could. The Old Covenant is the pattern. It is the blueprint. It's, it's the natural portrayal of the spiritual reality. Excuse me, the reality. And yes, we have come to the, to the spiritual substance in Christ. We have come to the fulfillment and the realization of all, all that the shadows ever spoke of. But even so... Now when we look back to the shadow, the Spirit can use those descriptions, God-given descriptions, to show us an even greater view of what we've come to. The Spirit can take the natural pictures and use it to reveal the eternal reality. So the offerings and the sacrifices of the Old Covenant, they're not, they're not just stories of how God wanted to be worshipped back in those days. The offerings and the sacrifices are the individual, uh, the individual views of Christ 
all very specific, these, these specific views of Christ that are central and critical elements of our salvation. And each offering, each offering and sacrifice represents an understanding of Christ and death and burial and resurrection. And there, there's a bunch, there's a bunch of them. There's a, there's, there's a number of specific offerings and sacrifices that were commanded. The Israelites did not get to use their imagination. You know, they were killed for using their imagination. Think about it. Hey God, I have an idea. And the ground opens up and swallows them alive. They didn't get to add or take away from God's specific commands. There were, there were burnt offerings, there were sin offerings, there were peace offerings, there were trespass offerings, grain offerings, and, and, and others as well. And every one of those, along with all the details surrounding them, are representative of a particular understanding of it. God's understanding. That's the particular understanding of an aspect of His work through the cross. And they're all different, and they're all incredibly important. And they all represent an aspect of God's view. And in my opinion, much of, uh, much of what I experienced in the church in earlier years likened the death of Christ to uh, a small view of one of the many offerings, the sin offerings. And even if we saw Christ in the sin offering, that's just one offering. That's just one aspect of the cross. And, and the picture is not complete without the others. In my opinion, for instance, it's impossible to understand the sin offering without first comprehending the first offering, which is the burnt offering. And I'm not going to get into all that this morning. I just want to point out to you for your consideration These types and shadows, these sacrifices and offerings were very much part of Paul's consideration. He understood that every detail of these aspects of God's law, they, fall, they all found their perfect spiritual counterpart in a realization of Christ, an awareness, a view of Christ crucified. Nothing is left to be fulfilled, but much is left to be realized. So when Paul indicates here in Ephesians 5.2 that Christ's love is the fulfillment of the sacrifices and offerings, I can promise you that the parallel is very, very intentional. When man looks back at the old covenant sacrifices and offerings, man sees rules and regulations and weird ceremonies and religion and blood and who knows what that was about. When Paul looked back at these offerings, he saw the love of God. And that should strike us. That should strike us as, as, a, as a little bit of a wake-up call. Paul understood the meaning of these shadows. When he saw these sacrifices and offerings, he saw the very love he was trying to describe in Ephesians. And I mainly just want you to think about that this morning. I want you to think about the fact that when Paul contemplated the pages of Leviticus, he saw the love of God giving us Christ as the perfect fulfillment of all of these offerings. What did he see there? Don't you want to see what he saw there? Don't you want to see that view? Wouldn't you like to read Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers? Those are always the, you know, Christians always joke about those who do like a one-year reading plan, you know. 
I get into Leviticus and it's just dry toast, you know. Wouldn't you like those to be windows through which you could really see the reality of God's love in Christ? Because they were to Paul. Wouldn't you like to see the burnt offering as a view of Christ where, where it was an end that God provided for the Adamic man? I believe it was to Paul. Paul saw that man, that Adamic man, hopeless and helpless in the pollution of the Adamic soul. And, and he understood that God provided an end for that man. A man that could find no end, God provided an end. A man that could never, never escape death, God provided death for death. A way for a soul to be liberated from that death and found in another man. I believe Paul saw that in the burnt offering. And I believe when Paul saw the sin offering, he saw a view of Christ where the blood of, of this death allowed fellowship with God. Even though Israel broke the covenant because of their blindness, even though Israel continually broke covenant in ignorance, the sin offering was there as a view of Christ that cleansed them from those sins and trespasses. I believe when he read of the peace offering, he saw a view of Christ that he described in Ephesians chapter 2, a view of Christ as our peace, taking the Jew and the Gentile together into death and bringing out from them one, one new man, one life. A great love, the great love of God to reconcile Jew and Gentile to himself through death in the body of his son. I believe in the offering of the first fruits. Paul saw the firstborn from among the dead. He saw the dead earth giving, giving ri something rising up from the dead earth. The firstborn of many brethren raised out from, out from the tomb and waved before the Lord, bringing many sons to glory. The one who opened the womb of death and brought forth his body. I believe, I believe when Paul read these feasts and these old covenant sacrifices and offerings. In each one of these, he saw the great love of God, Jesus Christ himself, given to humanity. In some sense, Christ is every offering given for man and acceptable to God. So it's not enough for Paul. You know, Paul would never have settled for just hearing that God loved him. Now, Paul wants to know the love of God. And to know the love of God, one must come to know the greatness and the unsearchable riches of what God has given us in Christ. And in order for you and I to begin that, begin to learn that greatness and that unsearchable riches of Christ, we can look where Paul looked in the pattern. And these offerings are um, an enormous amount of pictures depicting God's perspective. That's what it is, the Old Covenant. You know, it's just a, it's a collection of, 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 of pictures from God's perspective. God giving us a death that we couldn't die. God giving us blood that keeps us in covenant with Him. God giving us eternal peace with, with Him and His Son. God giving us the first fruits of the harvest. I mean, this is God's view. And I guess I'm just trying to, I'm trying to just advertise this morning the Old Covenant again. You know, we're having a great time, I think, going through, I am at least, going through these types of shadows in that 9 a.m. class. Uh, and and it's, it's just so important for us to see the substance and the fulfillment through the lens, through the window of God's written perspective, which is the Old Covenant. 
The love of God is beyond words. The best that can be done, the best that can be done is to paint a multitude of pictures of that love through Old Testament types and shadows. And that's exactly what the Lord has done. And while we look at these shadows, we can begin to see a love that included us in the death of the Lamb that we might bear in ourselves, as Paul says in Ephesians 5.2, that we might bear in ourselves the sweet-smelling aroma of Christ unto His Father. Amen. We'll stop with that. Let's just pray.